0: And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Then Jesus answered her, Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly.
1: Hi everybody, it is really Good to be with you and to be looking at the book of Matthew. We've been in this book now for a while as a church, going in and out of it uh, during the last year or two and learned so much as we've beheld the Lord Jesus. One of Matthew's favourite words is, behold. Uh, we, We get to take time staring at the Son of God and learning as we do so much about the nature of our God and so much about how we can approach Him. That's what comes through in this story. It seems to me it's a perfect launch into our week of prayer, our big Wednesday especially, uh, but a perfect launch into any prayer life, any kind of attempt to grow as a man or woman of prayer. What we have in this story is a a hero of prayer, this Canaanite woman. She does stand out in the pages of the Bible as somebody who approached God effectively. And as such, uh, she has a lot to instruct us with. It's a difficult story. It's kind of problematic for a, a lot of reasons. And it tends to offend us. And I think it's always appropriate when you find yourself being offended by Jesus. To, to stop and think, why? Why am I offended? What can I learn uh, from the offensiveness of this story? What is it about me uh, and what is it about Jesus that's going on here? Have I got Jesus wrong? Have I misunderstood this story? Is there something I need to learn about Jesus? Is there something I need to learn about myself and my own cultural assumptions that, that's questionable uh, in this story? It certainly does throw up those kinds of questions. We don't have a safe Jesus here. We don't have a kind of vanilla flavored saccharine Jesus. He, he shows a, a side of his personality here that, that at, at first at least seems unwelcome. He doesn't seem to encourage this poor woman. In fact, he seems to insult her. He even uses what looks like a racial slur when he speaks about her as a dog. Uh, there's, there's no good way to say that. You can't kind of gloss this over. I'm sure a lot of Bible teachers over the years have tried to sort of make out that, you know, it's a term of affection. You know, Jesus is being really sweet to her because, uh, you know, we love dogs. They're lovely, fluffy, kind of yappy things. And and Jesus is just, you know, she's a lovely little puppy. Uh, No, okay. In the Bible, dogs generally don't get a good press. And in this time especially, the Gentiles were looked down on as outsiders by God's people, the Jews, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the Gentiles, they, were, they weren't in the family. They were the kind of outsiders. They were the dogs. And Jesus is prepared to even use that language referring to this poor Gentile woman. So it seems offensive, surely. And, and we need to stop and consider what's going on here because these sort of things trigger us. And, and perhaps rightly so. How, how is it that Jesus uses this term in referring to uh, this woman. It's important to bear in mind right up front that Matthew as a book actually seems to go directly the opposite direction. Uh, We've been going through Matthew and and you may have noticed over the months if you've been with us or if you're new to us, let me say, uh, there are so many ways in which this writer, Matthew, who was an eyewitness of Jesus' public ministry He loves to point out again and again how Jesus was actually drawn to the outsider. He gravitates towards outsiders, people who would be considered too distant, uh, too disqualified, not from the right family, not from the right ethnic group, not from the right kind of religious background, uh, people with questionable lifestyles, people who are outsiders because of ritual reasons, you know, they, their skin was disfigured, they had what they would call leprosy at the time. These are the people that repeatedly Jesus is drawn towards. He seems to delight in going to find them, in, in touching the leper, in welcoming uh, the outsider, in reaching out to the, the a person that seems uh, oppressed by evil spirits, that seems to be uh, deeply mentally scarred. Jesus is drawn to the marginalized. And Jesus seems to, in fact, exclude the, the highly included, the people who would consider themselves as natural insiders. Jesus insistently calls them to reconsider, to reflect on whether they really are insiders. He continually speaks about God being drawn to those who aren't qualified by anything that the Jews of the time could have recognized, but are qualified by simple trust in him, by faith in him. And this means it kind of, Matthew, it works like a kind of topsy-turvy book. But it's also worth us stopping and thinking, why is it that there is this kind of apparent, ethnic division between Israel and the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations. I mean, I'm a Gentile. I'm not from a a Jewish ethnic background. And I guess probably most of us who are listening or watching this might might think, well, yeah, in that respect, I'm an outsider. How can I be included into God's family if this is how it seems to work, according to these these expectations of, of Jesus' time and the culture of the time, where there was one ethnic family Abraham's children who belonged to God and the rest of the nations didn't. Well, to understand this very simply, we need to see that the problem of humanity, it starts with our decision right at the start of history to replace God as the center of everything. We, we decided at the very start of our story, this is what the first page of the Bible described, the human decision to say, well, God, you have made us and invited us into your world where you, the, the God and Father of Jesus Christ, exists to, to bring us into your joy, your happiness, your love, with you at the centre of it all. But we would, would rather that we were at the centre you can kind of be in it, maybe, but we insist that we are central. In fact, I insist that I am central. And we, we've kind of, from that very beginning point in the Bible, insisted on our own independent centrality to everything. We've, we've established selfishness, and the results of it, sin, shame, death, we, we've... Reach those results. That's the effect. And it also means there's been a division between different nations, nations that are often, well, driven by, by fallen human instincts, by selfishness, cut off from one another, warring against each other, suspicious of one another, cynical about one another. This is surely a big chunk of the human story, isn't it? God in his desire to actually bring together a people from all different nations has worked through thousands of years to make this happen. And the beginning stage of it actually was to start with one race, with uh, the people of Israel, one ethnic group. And his desire in starting to do that was to, uh, to actually ultimately create a people that were made from all ethnic groups. Jesus comes in at the point in the story where this is about to happen. Jesus comes in actually through his, his extraordinary life and death and resurrection to create the possibility and the opportunity for all the non-Jewish nations to come in and to be welcome as part of the people of God. But it's not an instant process. The, 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 the problem of our division with God is a very serious problem. And the problem of our divisions against one another. The the division between God's people, the Jews, and the rest of the world was a massive division. It was a very real thing. And it was shown in all kinds of rituals and all kinds of differences in in terms of how they related to one another, how they related to God. They were a different people. And it wasn't going to be a simple thing in changing that. However much God wanted to cross the divide between himself and people and between his people and the world, it wasn't simple. Yesterday, I uh, took my kids to see uh, my parents. We had a big kind of wider family day before we go down to the six on Monday. And uh, we had to say to our kids in the car on the way, whatever you do, don't uh, hug your, your grandparents. Don't, you, know, you can't touch them. You can't kiss them. And the reason why? Because we hate them. We made it very clear in the drive on the way up. We think they're awful and evil, and so you mustn't touch them. No, no, the reason why is because we love them. Uh, The reason for our uh, decision to do the the totally counterintuitive thing of keeping away is because we love them, because of safety, because it's appropriate to do that. And so there's lots of the Bible that that seems strange. It's this kind of strange divisions between people and these are pure people, these aren't pure. Because the problem of sin takes more management than the problem of COVID-19, way more. It takes thousands of years of God working through his people, working through his son to bring a unity that is overwhelmingly good. But at this point in the story, you've got this kind of just breaking in. You've got outsiders coming in. It's interesting that Matthew, for example, a few pages earlier in Matthew chapter 8, we get the story, you may remember, of the centurion, the Roman soldier, who comes to Jesus also for someone else to be healed. And Jesus says this about the Roman centurion. This is like a Gentile of Gentiles. This is an enemy soldier. Jesus says this about him. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the same gospel. This is Matthew making this huge point. If you want to talk about who's the children at the table and who are the dogs on the outside, Jesus is saying, be really careful. Because the basis on which God welcomes us into fellowship, the basis on which Jesus uh, is, is saying, come into the family of God is not our own ethnic background, our own sense of family pride, our own sense of what we've achieved, our righteousness, our being kind of pure in some ritualistic sense. No, the only basis on which we are welcome at the table is what this centurion had or what this Canaanite woman has. Faith in God. That's it. Faith. He's looking for faith. He's looking for faith whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Whatever your ethnic background, whatever your educational background, whatever, whatever your life, whatever your past, whatever your story, whatever lifestyle you're currently in, what is God looking for from you? What do you expect him to say to you? Well, clean up your life and then I might think about you. Or you know, if you apply carefully for the job, we'll consider your CV. We'll take you through a stringent interview process. No, no, Jesus is calling us to trusting him, to faith in him. That's it, and that's what he honors this woman for in this story, that's what he honors the centurion for. And that's what he continues to do today. He calls us into a relationship based on trust in his character, trust in him, trust in who he is. And what I wanna do before I finish is just kinda unpack the faith that we see in this heroic woman of faith. How does she show faith? How does she pray in faith? And there there are so many things we could say. I'm gonna draw out three Uh, from this story. First of all, her humility. The the humility of her faith is striking. Second of all, the persistence of her faith. And then thirdly, revelation. Revelation. We'll talk about those three. First of all, humility. She she comes to Jesus humbly. She comes kneeling. She comes calling him Lord. She, She even absorbs some of the offense of the occasion, and is humble in the situation. It it takes a, a, a remarkable perspective to not come to God with a sense of entitlement, to not come to God with assumptions, to not come to God trying to make a transaction with him, to trade with him. This is what we naturally do. What we will tend to do is try and make claims on God. That's what religion is. Religion essentially is human beings trying to do business with God, trying to present a good side of ourselves so God will be indebted to us, obliged to us. But you see none of that here. She comes saying, have mercy. It's an interesting word. There's a uh, story Uh, I don't know how true it is, but it makes a point powerfully. Napoleon was uh, approached by a mother of a a, a soldier in his army who had done something warranting the death penalty. He was set for execution after a court-martial. And then she approaches Napoleon herself to appeal to him for mercy. She said, have mercy on my son. Napoleon says to her, why should I have mercy on your son? Why does he deserve mercy? And she said, if he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. And Napoleon forgave her son and he was set free because he he was impressed by the point she made. Mercy is undeserving. Mercy goes to the undeserving. That's the whole point of mercy. Mercy doesn't go to those who present a good case. It's given freely. It's, It's given graciously And and she understands this. She knows she's got nothing to claim. So she comes humbly and says, please have mercy on me. This is the only way that you and I can approach God, friends. Sometimes in prayer, I am tempted to try and present myself as being owed something. And I'm wiser to come back to God and say, Lord, I, I have nothing to claim before you, but I know that you are merciful and I come to receive mercy. It's wonderfully liberating to understand the ways of God like this. This is his character and this is what gives us the strength of our appeal. She also is humble in the sense that she, she refuses to take offence. She's got every reason to take offence, I would say. I mean, if I was this woman, I, I am offended. And I suppose it's always tempting for us to reach for the offence switch, you know, to pull the offence lever. I'm offended, I'm out. You've offended me, I'm out. How many of us and how many times go through moments where we could actually get to know God better? We could press through something. We could engage with God. We could pray effectively, but we give up because of offence. Something seems offensive, and it so colours our, our, our reaction that we are jilted backwards into a place of kind of begrudging coldness towards God, she, she, she has every reason to. I, I would have thought she had legitimate reason. Can you imagine? Did, sorry, did you just call me a dog? Did you, just, did you just ignore me? I can imagine even the way she would have felt offended by the disciples. It says the disciples said to Jesus, tell her to go away. How many of us would have the same story? I'm sure many could say, yeah, it's the disciples of Jesus. It's the church. It's the Christians. They are offensive. I, I, w- I went to church and they didn't talk to me. You know, I've been around Christians. Yeah, they're hypocrites. They, they say they love Jesus. They don't love, people. They love me much. They're rude to me. You know, I've not, I knew a Christian. I used to work with one. Or, yeah, you know, my, my wife's a Christian. You should see her in the morning. You should see how rude she is. You know. my, my kids, they go to the youth group, but they, they, I'm offended. And we might have good reason to be offended because the disciples of Jesus' flawed people can create that sense of offence. But somehow this woman, she doesn't back down. Somehow she can handle it. There's a humility about her. She says, okay, okay, I'm going to keep going. And this is what leads me on to the second characteristic of her faith. She is humble, but she's also persistent, She's persistent. There's something about persistent trust, persistent faith that God particularly honours. The Bible talks about faith and patience inheriting the promises in Hebrews chapter six. Faith needs to take on patience, needs to take on persistence very often to, to see breakthrough, to see lasting change. And she exercises persistence and patience extraordinarily. She comes back at him. Jesus, Jesus ignores her. Jesus gives her the answer she doesn't want to hear. She asks again. Jesus gives her another answer she doesn't want to hear. And this time with, with bells on, you know, with the dog word. And she still comes back. She's still, yeah, yeah, but even the dogs get the scraps from the table. Wow. Persistence is rewarded. She, she shows a, an ability to be argumentative with God difficult you know when my kids argue with me about things I I have to teach them not to be argumentative but there's also a side of it where I know I I don't want you to not be argumentative with God I find this hard as a dad I don't know about you if you're a parent it's a I'm trying to train my kids to not argue with me but I kind of also want them to learn how to argue with me because then they might learn how to argue with God prayer is about arguing with God very often it's about coming back to him saying yeah but what about this what about that making a case And she makes one, a humble one, but she makes one all the same and she makes it persistently. The scripture teaches this all through. You you may remember Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, ask, seek, knock. By the way, the words there are are, are not passive. They're they're, they're strong uh, verbs. Asking, be asking, be seeking, be knocking, be an asking kind of person. And if the asking doesn't work, be a seeking kind of person. If the seeking doesn't work, be a knocking kind of person. Press in. He taught them many parables, Matthew says elsewhere, to to, to show them that men are always to pray and not give up. He told stories, many, to say, look, don't give up. Don't, Don't be a quitter in prayer. There's something about persistence that is rewarded, it seems, in prayer. And we need to receive that lesson from this heroic lady but thirdly, and this is the root of the first and the second, all right? Because we've got to get this right. We gotta, this is an important needle to thread. This woman, in fact, is not ultimately the hero of the story because she's, uh, you know, some rugged, robust, persistent woman who is incredibly impressive on her own legs. No, no, no. This woman herself draws energy and fuel for her persistence and her humility through the third characteristic of faith, which is the most important one. And that is that it's based on revelation. The reason she's persistent and the reason she's humble is because of what she's seen about Jesus. She knows a thing or two. She knows something. In fact, she knows stuff that it seems Israel hasn't known, hasn't noticed. She's looked more closely. You can tell this by the way she addresses him. You may, you may have thought about this in, in the language she uses when she approaches him. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. <laughs> People got in trouble for calling him son of David. She doesn't care. When Jesus was born, you may remember the, the king of Israel wanted him killed. Didn't like the idea of a son of David, but that's who she knows him to be. She's she's not even Jewish and she knows that the king of the Jews is standing in front of her. She says, you are the Messiah. You are the king. You are the son of that. You are the promised one. You're the one who is sent into the world to deal with God's enemies and to rescue God's people. That's who you are. I see it. I get it. She knows who Jesus is. She knows what he's come to do. She understands the story that Jesus is the climax of. And she says, Lord, have mercy. These words aren't incidental, friends. Lord, the word is, is it's not just sir, it's richer than that. It goes, and even to twin it with have mercy. When God reveals himself in the Old Testament to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, it's with this language the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in everlasting, steadfast love. She is saying, that's who you are. You're the Lord. You're the Lord. Not just a Lord. You're the Lord. You're Israel's Lord. It's in the flesh. Yeah, wrapped up in skin. But nevertheless, that's who you are. I get it. I see it. You are the merciful God who split seas and rescue people from evil. And my daughter is afflicted with evil. There's an evil power that's ruining her life and despoiling our family and destroying everything that we love. And I need the merciful God to break into my situation. I believe that's who you are. She's seen him for who he is. My friend, until you start to see Jesus as more than just the nice guy, the vanilla flavoured predictable, safe one, the toothless, useless one. Until you, start, until you start to see him as the Lord, the son of David, the one who is merciful, but overwhelmingly merciful, overwhelmingly gracious, good, nice, kind, gentle, oh yeah, but with capital letters in a, in a scary way, magnificently kind, overwhelmingly gracious. When you start to see Jesus the pumping heartbeat of the loving, so loving that he went to the cross. When you start to see that, you start to be able to say, I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna persist. I'm gonna keep asking because I know enough about you, even when you're being apparently rude to me. And this, this is, I just wanna dwell on this before we finish. It's so important. Let me just, let me just take the time to make this point because the evidence in front of this woman's face doesn't seem encouraging, does it? The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and rich, in abounding in steadfast love. Not really, he doesn't seem abounding in anything except rudeness, right? In this story, he's not abounding in steadfast love. He's he's being weird with her, calling her a weird name, not talking to her. What, 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 what are you doing? Jesus, why are you being like that? I thought you were the Lord, the merciful one. This is the strange agony that we will have to go through if we want to seek God. Each one of us will know something about this. Martin Luther, he, he, he used to say that the God, that the Jesus who the Bible describes as the most excellent, the most beautiful of men. It also says in Isaiah 53 that there was, there was nothing fine about him. He's not, not good looking. He had no form of majesty, that we, no beauty that we should esteem him. When God shows up in the flesh, he shows up as an ordinary-looking guy. Did you know that? Jesus, was an ordinary, it wasn't, it wasn't Hollywood material, Jesus. If you saw him now, you would be brought to your face by his beauty. You would be on your face by how extraordinary he looks. God has a way of hiding himself sometimes. God has a way of not showing us the, the, the beauty that we would, we would hope in. And this happens throughout Scripture. We, we see cases of it again and again. You see, you see that it's the, it's the pattern and story in the Bible. People who, you know, like I was thinking about this. This week I've been reading in the, the, the book of Job this last couple of weeks. And it's, it's got words like this where, where one of the heroes of the Bible says this to God, I cry to you, O Lord, but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you don't even look. You become cruel toward me. You use your power to persecute me. It made me think of this woman. You Ignore me. You're cruel to me. Why is God like this? I don't always have the answers. I don't know completely. I'm not supposed to know. But I'll tell you this. In Job's story, God wasn't ignoring him at all. Sometimes we think, God, you're just not even interested in me. I've felt like that often in my praying, when, my, when I find it so hard to pray, even in prayer meetings sometimes, like big Wednesdays, I struggle just like you do. I find it hard to believe that he really wants to hear me. He's interested in my prayer. Sometimes you go through long seasons where prayers don't get answered and you feel, why are you being like this to me, God? Why are you doing, why, is this is this even worth doing? Is this even worthwhile? What a waste of time this is. What what an idiot I am to waste time seeking God. feels like that. If you've followed Jesus for any time, you'll know seasons like this. But they're in the Bible. They really are. They're they're clear. They're not hidden. They're right here. This story is here for a reason. Why? Well, imagine that Job, the, the conversation behind Job's back is God is saying, "Watch Job? Consider Job, I'm watching, I'm watching Job. I think it's like that with this woman. When Jesus seems to be looking the other way, remember that he has eyes in the back of his head. He is always watching. Remember perhaps the story of these blind men earlier in Matthew's gospel who had to follow Jesus for ages before he turned around to heal them, ages. And eventually Jesus does heal them and he's just kind of walking away. Why would he be so unkind? Well, he's not facing them, but he's got eyes in the back of his head. It's like he's actually watching always. The times when we feel so lonely, feel so ignored, maybe even feel like God's being hostile. Friends, he's watching always. And he watches to see, are we trusting? Have we seen how good he is? Are we like this woman where, listen, she is more impressed with the mercy of Jesus than she is by what he seems to be doing right now. She's taking his mercy more seriously than what he seems to be saying right now. And God will do that in your life. God will seem to be showing no mercy. And at those times you need to continue to remind yourself of what he's really like. Remind yourself of his goodness, his love, behind the clouds, behind the darkness, behind the frown, There's this deep smile, there's this warmth, there's this love, there's this tenderness, there's this willingness to heal, to raise up. And he shows it to her, woman, (laughs) your faith is great. Your daughter's healed, you go on your way. He's pleased to heal her, because that's what he's like. He's pleased to answer prayer, pleased to reach out and love us, because actually he's the one who prays for us in our need, carries us, prays with more passion than we do. Whenever we come to a prayer meeting, he started. He's there before we are, praying for us, speaking to the Father on our behalf, loving us wholeheartedly at all times. Let's pray right now. Father, thank you for your wonderful son. Thank you for all of his goodness, for his genuine care for us. We confess, we do find it difficult to know, especially at times like this weird 2020 year. What is God doing? What is he saying? Why is God not showing up in my situation? Why is he not answering my questions? Why do I still not know what's going to happen? I've prayed for so long. I've sought you for so long. And you don't seem to show me answers. In fact, you seem to show me kind of the hard side of your hand. Lord, help us to come back to what we know of your goodness and your tenderness. And trust you. Help us to grow in faith like this mighty woman. Help us to know deep down you are good. You are good. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Friends, let's worship. Nathan and Lou are going to lead us. Let's draw near to God.